Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast, thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. Hi, this is Craig Morton, aka Crash Test Craig. I haven't been called that for a while. On this podcast, we've been silent for some time, but now, with so much to talk about, it's time to seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Hello. Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Uh, right now, it's just me, Craig Morton, and I'm still in the process of putting together some additional co-hosts. I've had a conversation with uh, one uh, pastor. Uh, it was just a remarkable conversation, so I hope uh, things will work out uh, to have him be a co-host with me. I don't like the idea of speaking by myself. It just seems much less conversational, and I guess if it were conversational, it would feel a little little odd to have a conversation with myself out loud and then share it with everybody. So I'm hoping that in this time before I get uh, some additional co-hosts working with me, that this will feel like a conversation with you, whoever is listening there on the other end. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do with All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast, uh, since we started it a few years ago, was to make sure that we can provide interesting ideas, connections with culture, some uh, imaginative, imaginative uh, ways of, of moving forward. But I also don't want it to be exclusively for pastors. Uh, pastors, preachers, there's tons of resources out there for us. And hopefully this can resource uh, pastors and preachers as well. But I'm really also uh, in, you know, wanting to think about those who are teachers and those who are administrators, who serve on boards, who are deacons or elders, or you know, provide some kind of spiritual counsel in the congregation. Uh, folks who are simply interested in learning more about being part of the church and how they might use their unique personalities to, to lean forward. And the idea of the blue collar piece is it, we don't want it to be excessively egghead. Uh, don't want it to be overly academic. And I know that a lot of pastor resources you know, we can get really hung up. Well, I should speak personally. I can get really sidetracked and chase down those really fascinating uh, trails going on, going off on, you know, the history of philosophy and some of the historical interactions that took place with some this kind of insight or that kind of insight. Then find different ways of looking at Greek verbs and parsing them and finding different nuances of meaning and and then throwing out some large philosophical or theological term. I like that, but this isn't that. And so our one of our mottos has always been that um, we don't want to use big words. Uh, yet, profound things may be said, but it will be entirely by accident. And that's one of the things that's the fruit of conversation. So in the midst of conversation, we can, we can pick up on some of those... Um, wonderful insights that we wouldn't have come up by ourselves. So that's one of the other reasons I'm looking for these co-hosts, 
is to get that conversation element going so that there's a, a free give and take and some, some unexpected twists and turns that leads to some new insight, some imagination that hadn't previously been, been engaged. Well, with that said, that's just a little introduction there, a little bit more of an explanation of the introduction. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do over the next few weeks is I'm going to release some interviews that we have on file. And these re interviews date back to a year ago, uh, one interview from last spring. Uh, we have an interview from last winter uh, and have a couple of interviews from this spring. So I've got about four interviews that I uh, want to get through. And those interviews uh, are going to be without a whole lot of commentary, and we're going to just try to jump into it and then provide some, um, some resource, some way to think about some things uh, in a timely way. One of the interviews that I had last year, I think it was March or April of 2019, was with Melanie Springer-Mock, who's a professor at George Fox University and also is an avid uh, uh, sports fan. Uh, She's a runner. Uh, she has had experience as a college athlete. And uh, that was one of the things that caught my attention initially. But she came out with a book called Worthy, Finding Yourself in a World Expecting Somebody Else. And so after having read that, we talked a little bit about some of the aspects of that book. And I think we had a good conversation. And I think it is uh, even a year later, it's still a good conversation. So that one will be coming out uh, in in. Uh, in the next few weeks. Then over the winter, uh, it was still 2019, probably November, December, had a conversation with Angela Denker, uh, Lutheran pastor, former uh, sports writer with ESPN and several other uh, uh, organizations. But uh, she had recently come out with a book called Red State Christians, Understanding Voters Who Elected Don Donald Trump. A fascinating read, kind of the political and spiritual geography, little, literally geography, uh, because she traveled to different parts of the United States to conduct some interviews and develop some uh, qualitative research. We had a good conversation, and I think the issues that were timely then around her book uh, have not become less uh, important. So we will pick up on some of those conversations as well, and I'll bring that to you in the next uh, few weeks. Another interview that we had, it was a conversation with uh, my congregation as we're going through a replanting process, but I think it's a great conversation to share with everybody else. We had uh, Richard Beck spend some time with us. Richard's uh, theology, theological work, as well as his psychological work, is really focused on what does it mean to really love the other, and and what does it mean to kind of go beyond ourselves with that servant servant heart servant mentality? Along with that, his his uh, work focuses also on the fear of death, and those two ideas really go hand in hand. And so, the fear of death was something that we were thinking about as the the post Easter season comes around. We have this victory over death. So what does that mean for us? And so that was the gener general uh, nature of the conversation we had with Richard. And that interview will be coming out. And then another interview was with Doug Paget, which uh, Doug Paget, some of you may know, was back during the emerging church days in the early 2000s. We had a wonderful congregation called Solomon's Porch in the Twin Cities area. And Doug and I 
back then, back in those days, had uh, a lot of uh, overlapping relationships, people we worked with, but we never got together, he and I. So we were able to get together over Zoom and had another conversation with our congregation about Doug's new work that he's been doing, Vote Common Good, where uh, his goal, or the goal of Vote Common Good, is to make sure there's a significant regime change in the American political landscape and that uh, we move forward with more justice and more love. And the website, Vote Common Good, has a number of uh, resources available uh, and ideas and different ways of looking at the whole process of, you know, what do we want when we're electing somebody? And allowing love, actually, to be a key motivator. So those are some of the interviews that we've got, and want to make sure that we get some of those uh, posted here as part of the All This Holy Blue Collar podcast. So that's, you know, taken up about 10 minutes here, so sorry about that. want to jump into our most recent interview, though. We just uh, had a conversation over the last, uh, oh, just the last day, just yesterday, again, with our congregation as we, you know, meet through Zoom, invited Mark Karras to to spend about an hour or so with us. And so we'll go ahead and put his conversation with us up here on, on the podcast. Just to note, there are some technical problems uh, with uploads on Zoom, some, some other kinds of uh, challenges we had. So there's a few skips and clicks and uh, places where the audio drops out. Hopefully it won't be too much and it won't be too irritating. We had a great conversation as he was telling us about his brand new book, Religious Refugees, and the religious refugees as far as what's the character, what is some of the, what are some of the, the, the reasons they've become refugees, what are the things that these individuals may be looking for. And a lot of the conversation seemed to revolve around evangelical Christianity and people who are leaving evangelical Christianity, and not simply leaving evangelicalism, but leaving Christianity completely. And what is it these people are looking for? How can we provide community and a place of fellowship? And what, what does it mean for us you know, inside the church to be acknowledging and recognizing their spiritual path? Um, how do we? Can we? You know, what are the ways in which we might come alongside? So that was the, the, um, the general direction of that conversation. Uh, after the conversation, I'll probably come on with a few uh, notes and some... Uh, ideas about what's going on in the future, and looking forward to your comments and suggestions. So without much further ado, we're going to come up with uh, our interview, our conversation with Mark Karras. It was a Drew Theological uh, School in, in New Jersey. That was the MDiv, and then the MA in Counseling was actually at the uh, Alliance Graduate School of Counseling, which was a Christian Missionary Alliance institution. So, an adjunct professor right now at Point Loma Nazarene University in, in private practice here in San Diego. But part of this, this ongoing conversation. And Point Loma, I think, is where we ended up having some point of intersection because uh, of a mutual friend for us who's just down the street and around the corner, Tom Ord. And uh, you've built on some of the work of Tom and moved it into some er other areas. Absolutely, Tom. Uh, very connected with Tom Sword. Brilliant. Big fan of his. And yeah, that's one of our points of connection here. Yeah. 
So what what uh, I had asked you to do is just kind of prepare some information, some uh, to kind of take take uh, take the screen here uh, f uh, for several minutes or for a while uh, to share what you have, mm -hmm. and then um, and then we'll have some time of some Q and A after that. So your latest book just came out on Thursday, Religious Refugees. Yes, sir. Uh, which is actually a pretty exciting title. It, it seems uh, so appropriate to our personal or our, our congregational history. For so long, we just had a bunch of refugees from other churches join us for a while. Mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. it's, it was part of their journey, and then they moved on to other locations. So the name kind of clicks uh, for us. So go ahead. I uh, look forward to what you have to share. Yeah, wonderful. I'll be yeah. talking about the psychology of religious refugees. And if I think we have about 15 minutes for that, Craig. I'm going to set a timer because I want to respect that time. And then we'll, we'll have some questions and I'll facilitate that. And it uh, should be fun. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds great. So I'm going to get started for those who are viewing uh, on Facebook. Once again, the best viewing option is to go to view options and do the side-by-side -side profile here. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Obviously, my book just came out, I think it was yesterday or the day before. So very exciting so, times. And so we'll be talking about a, a subject that I'm very passionate about. So I'm going to time this for about 15 minutes here. So religious refugee, some, there's different words, different phrases for this subgroup of people. Sociologists like to call them the de-churched or the duns. Some call them the spiritual refugees. I chose religious refugees because typically if you think of a refugee, like maybe a, an Ethiopian refugee, they're, they're leaving their homeland of Ethiopia. And in this way, uh, those of us who may be spiritual refugees, we are leaving the homeland in a sense of institutional religion. And even with that, there's some nuance. So I think a, a person who had chosen to flee their homeland of institutional religion to find a space where they feel safe and congruent. I wanted to leave the, the word shows there because I don't want to rob people of uh, their, their ability to have choice. I think that's disempowering to say that they don't have choice. At the same time, I'm very conscious that there's a force that is pushing uh, people to, to leave. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then once again, they're leaving in a sense, institutional religion, and they're not leaving the church. And this is important. They're leaving maybe the church, the local church, but not the church universal. They have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus, but there's some things, some principles, some practices some propositions that have been given to them that they've been a part of that no longer sits well with their conscience. And so this is where feeling safe and congruent comes into play because they value safety. For them, there's something about the institutional uh, form of Christianity, which can be off-putting for their soul. And some studies talk about why that is the case. And so they want to find a place where they feel at home where they feel congruent, not necessarily where they don't feel challenged, because any de-churched person who is tethered to the beauty of Christ will say, yes, uh, to take up one's cross and to live a life of love is challenging. 
So it's not wanting to be devoid of challenges, but it's simply the the rejection. It's the the words. The and we'll talk more about why they're leaving. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of crash course through the stuff here. Some of the reasons: politics right. and bureau politics and bureaucracy. And you know, some people feel like they're unable to make a difference. And maybe, you know, they're divorced or too young or too old or they're not white enough or not hip enough. Or, I mean, it's, it's very sad what happens. I, I remember a, a person in college, some of those who listen to this may be from Nyack College. There was a guy who was passionate about Jesus, passionate about the Bible, strong heart for missions, but he didn't look the part. Um, he had some weight on him and... He had acne all over his face. And I always saw the, the, the sad reality that he wasn't in the in crowd. He wasn't on the stage. And I thought to myself, this guy has more love for Jesus and Jesus's people than some of these people. I mean, geez, even including myself, it was very, I never forgot that. So these people are kind of hitting a wall. They, they want to do things in the church. But then there's these politics and bureaucracy that kind of keep them stuck and behind this sort of almost glass ceiling, if you will. Clone War Syndrome, this is a, a term that I came up with because diversity is feared and stifled for the comfort of homogeneity in churches. And there's almost a sense in some churches that they're at war, we're at war with culture, uh, we're at war with other denominations because we are the only ones who have the truth, so to speak. So there's a sense of wanting to create these chia pets, these cookie cutter Christians where we all kind of believe the same things. And of course, if we don't, there's repercussions, both, in, both implicitly and explicitly. I'm going to run through these more prescriptions. You have a, a sense that in Josh Packard's work, the sociologist, and he said, I quote, the D church were some of the most dedicated people in the church passionate about God. But here is something that was sort of pushing them away from sort of some churches was this sense of moral prescriptions. Every sermon felt like it was about personal holiness, uh, four ways to accomplish some sort of masterful sin management program. And then, of course, there was the, you know, the turn and burn sort of messages too, but all that sort of was stifling the heart and the creative souls of certain people because they wanted to be in the world doing incredible things, being the literal hands and feet of God and being empowered to do that and encouraged to do that. And it was almost, you know, stifling, almost putting sand in the cast tank of some of these people's hearts because it was constantly just about us, very narrow, me-centric. Uh, then shallowitis, the sense that we can't be congruent, we can't experience the full gamut of the human experience in church. And, um, you know, where's the lament? Where is the protest? Where is the worship songs that we, we shake a holy and sacred fist to God? I mean, where is talking about real, uh, real issues of the world, of our lives, of our hearts? So there was a sense of church being shallow. People wanted more than just fog machines and fancy lights. They wanted to, you know, experience themselves and their community and, and the fullness of who they are. And sometimes that's the get good, bad, beautiful, and ugly. But the church, some churches were splitting off 
parts of who we are and only accepting the shiny smile, positive, upbeat worship songs where we sing the chorus 50,000 times. So, and then of course so, the last one. And then of course the last one. Oh, oh did you have a question already? Who? Uh, no, yeah, um, I, I did not. Okay, let, we'll wait to okay, the end we'll here. To the end. I'm going to go through the end here, and then we'll Well, plenty of time for oh, questions. Right. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting an echo here. Okay, so harsh judgment and harsh judgment and harsh judgment and criticism. Uh, can you still, Craig? I can hear you fine. I'm going to shut down my audio for now, just to see if that helps. So I don't. So I don't. Yeah, well, my mic. So, just I'll some uh, a little bit of audio issues here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, okay. So harsh judgment and criticism—that sort of has been a, a key role in some people, you know, leaving the church because of not feeling, you know, a sense of acceptance or not feeling a safe place to explore different. Uh, parts of who they were and being like I said implicitly or explicitly judged by who they what they look like who they're with and kind of different uh, arenas of the human experience so some and this is what I'm calling the religious disorientation growth syndrome these are some of the symptoms that I have seen people experience through what's called the deconstruction and reconstruction uh, season or period of their life I do think we're all deconstructing and reconstructing most of us throughout our lives, some more than others. But there's definitely, we don't want to lose the sense of there's, there's this sort of very embodied visceral experience for some in a certain particular season in their Christian walk that they could experience a sense of doubting or denying one's religious beliefs that were once held as true. Subtle or intense anxiety about a person's relationship with God increase of painful emotions, isolation and criticism, feared or realized, this is a big one. Because sometimes I, I do find in the people that I work with, you know, as a therapist or just talk to or my own experiences as somebody who is a religious refugee, the tendency to project as a people are judging, but that's difficult because there are some who do. And just the other day, once again, I was told I'm a false prophet and going to hell. Um, so it doesn't feel good, but unfortunately, that's part of what we're, we're dealing with. And then existential angst concerning a person's identity and future self. And so the result can be growth and transformation. And that's something that's missed in, in this experience is that this can open up. Uh, there was one person who wrote a book called Deconversions. It was his own experience of going through this process. And, you know, this took him from being, in a sense, a child to being a mature, healthy human being in the world who had a strong sense of identity and what they wanted as opposed to what they wanted, right? So that can be a very positive experience for some. For some, we're talking about religious trauma. It's real. Not everybody experiences this process as traumatic, but there's enough in the literature and the qualitative research and just anecdotally to, to suggest that people go through a literal hell. Marlene Winnell, she wrote a, a book on, on this process. Now, her book is good, 
At the same time, she's coming from it, a very kind of strict psycho psychologist point of view and really kind of shuts the door to kind of um, reconstructing a, a spiritual identity. But she talks about certainly religious trauma. A book that recently came out and just breaks my heart when I read this, uh, Linda K. Klein, Evangelical Christianity's sexual purity movement is traumatizing many girls and maturing women haunted by sexual and gender-based anxiety, fear, and physical experiences that sometimes mimic the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Based on our nightmares, panic attacks, and paranoia, one might think my childhood friends and I had been to war. Are you there? Oh, you you're still there, Craig? Unfortunately, I can't seem to hear you. I think you're muted, Craig. Yeah, I had muted me, uh, myself because there was the echo going on. Okay, yeah, just okay, yeah. some. I'm um, just about finished there. I hear the echo as well. Yeah. So you want to just uh, finish up the slides and we can just talk, or? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just go ahead and uh, I'll continue, and then I'll go ahead and mute myself until you're done. Okay. Okay, so just want to finish up there. You know, th those who might have this posture of, you know, these people are just following after Satan. These people are just not praying enough. These people who are just not fasting enough. They're listening to the wrong podcast. Um, they have unforgiveness in their hearts. I, I hope that leaders take sort of a missional posture to many people in the D church because their experiences are real. And if you have any care or love and concern about these folks, you will seek to, you know, be creative and really mindful of how you engage uh, us as sort of religious refugees. I mean, nightmares and panic attacks and paranoia, these aren't one-offs. These, like I, I almost titled the book, We Are Legion, because we are many. There's many people that have these experiences due to, once again, the principles, propositions, and practices of, of certain churches. And like I said, I'm not splitting all churches bad. There are very healthy churches that do things very differently. But we're talking about certain people's experiences of some churches. And then we have uh, Raber Riley, who kind of a, a little bit more very creative and upbeat kind of fun way of writing in her memoir she 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 writes at some point if you read there i didn't mention the more destructive side effects of spiritual injury anger grief despair depression failure to believe in anything moral confusion loss of gravity emptiness and then this was a a fairly recent um, quote by a well-known podcaster i don't sleep through the night anymore i suffer through daily panic attacks and almost constant anxiety and we go on and on. Th these are just repeated in the, the qualitative literature of, of the de-churched. This was another study. Uh, this was done by Philip uh, Salem Francis. And this was a very interesting study about those who were kind of leaving the institutional church because of an experience that had something to do with art. And 
this was one of the participants' experiences where she kind of left God, left the institutional church, and she slipped into depression and these thoughts of you are a sinner, you're an evil, impure person, you have killed God like they killed Jesus. And I'm thinking, is this the end result of being in a community where even if you left, this would be the side effects? That doesn't seem like the oxygen of heaven uh, or the fruit of the spirit to me. So just to kind of conclude so we can facilitate some conversation, this is the kind of this is the path forward, and this is what I put, lay out in my book. And obviously, we can't talk about all these things, but these are some of the themes that that I talk about as far as community and witnesses or witnesses and the research surrounding self compassion, which in my mind is some of the most incredible research in in the last probably almost fifteen years and the absolute transformation one can experience by delving into uh, self-compassion principles and practices. And I could talk about that even in my own life and the research powerful. So talk about a lot in this book. And, um, you know, I just rather just open it up to some conversation and, and see where we uh, go from there. So I'm going to jump in with a few questions um, uh, just off the top of my head. Uh, one was, uh, you, you, we're, we're talking about people who are leaving a faith position, you know, our faith community, I mean, um, a religious idea. Is there any distinction or any difference between those who leave a fundamentalist or Pentecostal or uh, I should say Pentecostal, a fundamentalist or an evangelical world, as opposed to those who are part of mainline denominational world. I mean, do is there something that's unique about American evangelicalism, or is this also something that's uh, widely um, researched in other places, whether it be yeah. in uh, you know, other continents, or I, yeah. I know this is going on in the UK for sure, mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, is it is it kind of like an American evangelical thing, or is it wider than that? Yeah. Um, first, Craig, I don't know if you'd be uh, open to this, but you're. I think you're sharing your desktop, and so I don't know if you want to stop sharing yeah, your, I, your your screen. Oh there, yeah, I, and that would open up. Let the, me get off of that. <laughs> I'm going to stop my share here. <laughs> Tried to stop share, but it, I think it won't stop share since you're already sharing. Yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm no longer sharing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. That's, there that's, we go. There we go. There we go. Nice. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. No, no worries, no worries. Still learning yeah. things. <laughs> of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Like you said, there's. Um, I've been talking to people you know, in the last few days, certainly the UK is, man, they're, they're, they got wonderful people in groups talking about this stuff. Phil Drysdale in, in the UK is doing some phenomenal work. Uh, you know, he has this deconstruction kind of network over there. Uh, Tim Nash is doing great work at the No Man podcast. And then I'm hearing from readers in different parts of the world too, in Australia, um, 
in Holland. I mean, there, there's definitely the, the, the effects that religion in maybe certain structures of the Christian church, it just affects people. And so there could be many people on a deconstructive, reconstructive journey. Um, here's an interesting study that I remember from the Bielsfeld, the Bielsfeld study, which actually looked at a hundred uh, deconverts from the United States and Germany. That was an interesting study. And they had some very interesting finds. But there again, th this work is being done. Now, granted, some people are a little ahead of us in sort of what can be considered the post-Christian uh, society, so to speak. But yeah, so this stuff is happening. Uh, but of course, I think a lot of the research is being had in the United States. But again, we're here. So um, there could be other studies going on in other places we're just not hearing about or I'm not hearing about either. Uh, it, yeah, our personal experience for our, our congregation over the last 20 years, before we kind of went through the process of replanting, we had kind of folks who'd left Quaker churches, evangelical churches, um, can't remember who else we had, people who are part of other, some same Anabaptist tradition as ours, but still they were hurt or injured. And so that first comment you made about that bureaucracy or some of the pain that's caused there, that we witnessed. We've seen those things and we've kind of, a lot of those people have been part of our, you know, they still remain part of our core group or they have been part of our congregation in years past. I yeah. thought it was interesting though, there were a number of those, those different, uh, points that you mentioned of these things that push people out. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What what is it? What is it that begins to welcome them in? What kind of community um, nourishes, accepts, you know, welcomes, you know, makes them feel like they they're not alone on the journey? Yeah, there's a, a book. I don't know if it's out yet. But this is by Beth uh, Severson. It, it's a new book coming out. I got an advanced copy. It's called Not Done Yet, Reaching and Keeping Unchurched Emerging Adults. And she, she has kind of five practices that churches are doing well, uh, that are kind of either keeping uh, people in or inviting people in where they're more apt to stay in a church. But, you know, there's so many different subcategories. There's a lot of D churches that just, they're kind of really, quote, done. But she talks about initiating, inviting, including, involving, and investing. And so she goes through all of those and sort of initiating relationships and living missionally with sort of unchurched people and inviting, being enthusiastic about extending invitations. But of course, when they get there, there needs to be the sense of inclusivity, this radically including people into the life of the church, regardless. And this is such a shift because a lot of churches say you have to believe, you know, one through 10 before you do anything. And even sadly, you talk about politics and bureaucracy, you got to believe one through 10 and you got to be male and you have to be a white male. I mean, then, then you have to be an able white male. I mean, it's just, right. there's certain obstacles that are just really heartbreaking. And so there is this sort of radical inclusivity of, you know, and we've heard that expression, you know, belonging before they believe things, but it even goes beyond that. It's, can we belong even, even though we believe, may believe very different things? I mean, I got to tell you, I've never met two Christians who believe exactly the same thing about anything, uh, to be honest, but, 
there are days that I don't believe with the same thing that I believed the day before, or, or I may even be of two minds at the same time. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, and then when you realize we have a unconscious, and and you know, you know, eighty percent of the things that we think we believe, we don't even realize we believe. That's a whole nother level. So involving people uh, is really important. And then she talks about investing. You know, imagine loving people for the sake of loving people, not loving people so that they would bring more money into the church uh, or loving people so that they would bring more people in the church just for the sake of having more people in the church that would maybe make the pastor happy and increase the, the, the funds for sometimes a building that needs to be paid, granted, but there becomes these interesting motivations just to love people. So how about investing just to invest because that's what Jesus has called you to do to love and allow the spirit, not you to control the outcome. So there's, there's cool things that, that some churches are doing, you know, to, but then, you know, there's a whole component that's not talked about. It's the more, and this is probably coming from a therapist's point of view, the, the emotional mental, emotional, psychological aspects of the healing that needs to take place and, and the, the trained skill of experienced people who know how to navigate the murky and complicated territory of religious trauma, religious abuse. And so that, that will be, I think, an important element. Um, you know, n- you know, simple as knowing how to facilitate groups and not just in, and then knowing being trauma informed and knowing that if you go through a small group and all you talk about is things in your head, as if we're jousting with ideas, which really to me is a defense mechanism from getting to the real heart of the matter of life and of our experiences, of our shame, of our joy, of our trauma, of our guilt of our fear, right? If we don't get to the heart of the matter, then I think we're just, we're not facilitating the best kind of changes with some of these people that can be made precisely because we're talking about trauma and trauma is an embodied thing. It's not merely a cognitive uh, adventure here. Hmm. Yeah. It's an embodied thing. That's, that's huge because then it's so much more all encompassing than just talking, uh, believing, having the right content. Okay. Let me ask Carla if, she, if there's any uh, questions she wants. Okay. Anybody have a question they want to ask? Yes. Oh. Um, and I don't know how well I have this one put together. Are, are you, Mark, finding that um, those who have left churches are leaving more based on the absolutes that are taught by the churches? Or, or is it based on their view of who God is? Or maybe it's a combination and how. Can you hear the question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So absolutes and the, the image of God. That's sort of the two themes that I'm, I'm hearing in that. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. yeah. So I, I did talk about one of the dynamics was the moral prescriptions. So the, the absolute issue, and then you have uh, even um, clone war syndrome, right? This, this boxed in absolutes, black and white, uh, very linear, systematic kind of thinking. It's just not doing it for some people. I mean, there's a whole world out there. Uh, it, it, there's different cultures and different viewpoints, and 
different religions that have very neat things to offer that may not be a part of our tribe, but yet people hear some of these things and are like, man, I wish, I wish my tribe kind of emphasized that case in point, the, the arena of self-compassion, um, you know, the, the Eastern tradition certainly has that on the on Christians and self-compassion is one of the most important components that we're seeing in overall uh, health and view of self, a view of others, and even a view of God. So uh, absolutes is important, and the, the view of God is important too. Now, this isn't everyone's case. That's why I don't, in a sense, I don't like labels, because even when we have the overarching be churched, and this is what I like about other, other people, like even Dave Kinneman of the Barner Group, Kathy Escobar, they have term subcategories for people under the umbrella of the de-churched, right? Because there's so many different nuances and we don't want to force everyone into one mold. So I will say that for some people, and this gets in the area of theodicy, to be given a view of God who is in control of all things, who is willing and allowing and plan the COVID virus, right? And I've met people like this, and recently I've talked to people like this, that it was and is God's plan to perpetuate the pandemic that we're in and to kill people and cause a lot of suffering. Like, I'm not making this up. This is what people yeah. believe because God, so that's one aspect of it. Then you have people, really? So if I don't do this, then God is going to torment me for eternity so yeah, there are some people who say, and then they some some read the Old Testament and they look at divine violence and say, yeah, you're saying that's, just want to check with you, that's absolutely literal. You're saying that God burned people alive with fire and commanded people to be maimed and tortured. Um, yeah, I can't, sorry. Uh, so people have all, go there. Yeah. they have all different reasons and that's why it's so important to not, put people in categories and labels, but to listen right. to each and every one of them in their stories. One of the interesting things about those who would, uh, and you talked, you, you sent us uh, chapter three uh, from your mm. book to look at. And a lot of it is your own personal story yeah. of, of, of going through these processes. And then, and then towards the end, you talk about some other uh, ways of looking at scripture. You talk about something you call the PHL, mm -hmm. um, Every time I see that, I think of Philadelphia, uh, but uh, it's what the, the pet, pen, pentalateral. Uh, pentalateral hermeneutic of love. There we go. Yes. The one thing about the, the hermeneutic of love is that it seems um, naturally a part of so many, so many other people's um, heuristic. You know, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. that basis from which they measure the Old Testament and they go, uh, I've got this hermeneutical love already in me. That's why I'm looking at this God who slaughters people going, I can't do that. I can't go there. Right, it, it seems right. like there's this, uh, as opposed to kind of a Calvinistic, everybody's depraved kind of a thing. There's almost something about everybody who's got that divine spark and sees what love mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But they've yeah. been part of traditions yeah. or, or churches that have tried to tell them that, that whatever that divine spark that you're sensing, that sense of love as the real foundation, that's really not what it is. 
And we, oh my God, I, talk uh, about gaslighting. Without, without naming names or pointing fingers, we have a wonderful friend who's a part of our group here who says he was part of a church that told him he loved too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, isn't that where it starts? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. There, there's so many things wound up in that, but I think I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying, but there's something about that love as a foundational human thing that affects, mm -hmm. that can enable people to view religious reality or religious phenomena or religious tradition. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're talking about experience, right? You're talking about, you know, we seem to have this experience where, and, and when we become parents, it's, it's more palpable, right? Um, I could never physically violently hurt my child. But then I'm reading that that's God's modus operandi when it comes to his kids doing bad things. But then we're told, don't trust that experience. Because, Mark, God's ways are above your ways. And I always hear this, God is just. I'm like, so, so justice automatically equals violent punishment? But so it's just sort of yeah. crazy making. And listen, I, I, part of me understands this because to be fair, it is our sacred text. There are biblical authors who sort of have this view of God. I mean, even when Jesus comes along, there are people, hey, is this person uh, crippled because of this? Or what happened to his parents or this sin? So I get it. I, I totally get it. But. You know, they're my family. I'm not throwing out the Hebrew Bible. I, I don't cut passages out. I embrace them as what my ancient uh, family believed and held to. And there's things that I could learn from that. And that's, that's really important. If anything, what, sometimes what not to do, right? Uh, some things are not prescriptive. Sometimes they're, they're descriptive too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as, as a side note, one of the things that we've been working on over the last year is rephrasing, learning a new language, trying to figure out how to articulate good news. So we've been reading Derek Flood, Peter Enns. Um, we've read Tom's books. Um, we read yours. I mean, so much of this is learning a new language to be able to communicate this hermeneutic of love as the basis. You know, and you can look at the Old Testament yeah, that's our that's part of our family you know crazy uncle joshua or whatever um but but i think peter ends was really helpful mm -hmm. in learning how to look at those stories say yeah it's part of the family but we're not locked in there mm -hmm. things move forward in jesus in um, jesus yeah that's the important and, and G jesus is is where things head i mean that's where they need to point toward i, I guess mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. for us uh, I think yeah. one of the one of the other challenges then is I, I I personally run into this when I talk to folks who have given up on church, given up on religion, given up on on Christianity specifically, generally, mm -hmm. because they see what Christians seem to stand for in contemporary culture, or at least the ones they hear about, mm -hmm. and I feel like I've got to continually. Uh, squelch the desire to defend and say, "Yeah, but we're not that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're not we're not like those folks who 
whatever you know right, uh, right, right. we're not right. like we're not like those absolute evangelicals who lock people out who shut people down who who do that now to me that's not the way to present good news <laughs> no. just by saying i'm not that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i think part of for me and maybe some others is that challenge of saying of being defensive well we're not like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um how do how do how do we work through that what what yeah. how would you work through that yeah i think immediately what comes to mind is man i'm so sorry for uncle joe <laughs> you know like i i i totally get it yeah i'm i'm uh, i don't need to defend anything about that but i mean there's a reality of you know that old expression preach the gospel everywhere and when necessary use words you know i i think now more than ever words are just not going to cut it like we'll have to defend that by our lives and now more than ever christians will need to be incredibly creative Uh, and that's why we need to pray that's we, we pray for that kind of wisdom and clarity and creativity to love when words aren't just not enough uh to love when we have to have six foot distance like you know, so that means we have to show people and how we show people rather than tell people is going to be incredibly uh, difficult, but maybe incredibly easy too, because the, the only way it's going to happen is to take risks. And sometimes it might require a little less than, than six feet, uh, maybe six feet with some gloves and, and a mask but somehow to tangibly and practically love folks. Um, and especially for those who don't have the resources. I know a lot of people, this pandemic is like, it's like paradise. You know, they're, they're flourishing in every way because of this. Uh, and granted, they have the means to do that. They have the finances right. to do that. They have the structure and the system set up to do that. Others don't. And that's where we have to be more creative to go into the highways and byways for this very interesting world we're living in. Uh, yeah, Rick? Yeah, how do you uh, counter people that want to use the Bible as a weapon against, you know, um, what you're talking about um, with how we, how we view God? Um, is there, is there a, a good way to approach that? Is it through community? Is it through, I mean, you, you use a quote, I think, in your chapter, something about we could destroy all the copies of written word of the Bible is still, I'm not sure I'm phrasing exactly, but something about that, that we can still find God and we still follow God. So. The word of God lives forever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we've been touching on it. I think it's going to be through our lives. So in other words, how do we help people who have a distorted image of God, um, you know, have invite them into what we see as a more beautiful image of God. And part of that will be our ability to first empathize and validate. There's no, and even as a therapist, there's nothing more powerful than somebody sitting in my room. And even if I don't necessarily agree to their subjective experience or, you know, their, their propositions out of their subjective experience, I can say that makes so much sense. You would feel that way based on what you're believing. Like, of course you would feel that way. 
there's something about joining people in that. You know, I, I now I have the freedom to say, say yeah. yeah. So almost so like the town, right, hearing a little echo there, but tell me about the God that you don't believe in, right? So then we can work with that. And I can say, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to believe in that God either. And if I did believe in that God, I, yeah, I would have some sort of thing within me that says, hell no. But then it's not enough to just empathize and validate. Then if there's an invitation to explore further, we can, we can invite them into our story. And then we can invite them into an articulated narrative where, where I can say, and, and Craig mentioned it, I now have, hey, this is how I'm seeing things, guys. Um, you know, I have what I, you know, hold to right now is this, this pentalateral hermeneutic of love where I view all scripture through this lens, right? And it's based on the fruit of the spirit, the biblical definition of love, the only explicit parabolic picture Jesus gave of God the Father, found in the story of the prodigal, uh, what I call the prodigal father, then the, the love described in Matthew 5, and then, of course, Jesus. So I say, if a scripture verse that I'm reading that portrays God that doesn't line up with the fruit of the spirit, the biblical definition of love, the prodigal father, uh, the perfect love in Matthew 5 in Jesus' life, then I have to ask myself, there must be something going on with this text. There must be something else going on. And for sometimes it could be I'm reading into the text my own kind of sensibilities, or it could be I got to say, though, they were culturally conditioned. You know, if I was in that time, I would have had the same portrayal of God, too. And that's what Uncle Joe believed back then. So to have sort of an articulated position, it's not enough to deconstruct. It's important to reconstruct and have something to offer people instead of the, the damaging kind of narratives that they've been given. One of the things I heard you say in that answer, that reply is, it's also not a debate. Mm -hmm. So if somebody uses the Bible as a weapon, well, you can't throw another Bible verse back at them. It's kind of enter into their subjective experience. And it made me think of the martial art Aikido, where you take the blow and the energy from that rather than resisting it. And mm -hmm. you, 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 it, in so doing, you kind of disarm the other, but you you don't resist the other directly. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you, if you, I would guess if you enter into their interpretation, their subjectively find out where they're coming from, you have to build up the receptivity to say, well, you're using the Bible as a weapon this way. Let me show you the way to use uh, Jesus as the word non-weaponly or whatever, <laughs> not as a yeah. weapon, but as, a, as an not, invitation. That might not come to months. I mean, the, the okay. important point here point is, is, it's got to be relationships. We, we live in a yeah. world where we're just so skeptical and, you know, distrustful and the government and the conspiracy theories. The, the way to Jesus is sometimes through our hearts and through our lives. And initially it might be just hearing them and validating their experiences. And then it could be a month later where you have built up enough relationship that they're even open to listening to what you have to say. And that, and that's the hard part. This that, is just giving people a tract, you know, no more, no more ch chick track yeah. times. 
and it's going to require it's going to require love, uh, practical love, relational love, and that's when people are going to really listen to us. That's that's the that's the only way it's going to happen. I mean, how many debates and arguments have we gone on on Facebook that have gone absolutely nowhere, and people believe exactly this? I've I've been in plenty of those. No one changes their point of view. It's going to come down yeah. to uh, deep embodied spirit-filled, spirit-led adventures uh, with other people. For more information about Mark Karras, you can find him on Facebook. His latest book, Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing, is available at Choir Publishing. Choir is spelled Q-U-O-I-R. One of the things we've tried to do in the past is refrain from editing. And at this time of year, my office is on the back porch, so frequently you might be able to hear finches, sparrows, doves, as well as cars on lawnmowers. All the talking, interviews, and conversations are rough cut, mainly because we never wanted to take the time to get overly precise and picky. Rather, we have great ideas, and we just simply want to present them. Start following, commenting, and sending us ideas on the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast Facebook page. Also, you can search for the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast by going to themissionplace.org. Go to the Media tab, and you can find all of the episodes of the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. As we're closing out, I want to give a big shout-out to At the Speed of Darkness for the music intro and outro. You can follow At the Speed of Darkness and support his music at Bandcamp. Bandcamp.